This is the Motley Fool Money Mailbag. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, our very special Sunday mailbag edition. I say the same thing every Sunday, but why not? It's still Sunday. It's still special. It's still our mailbag. This is still Motley Fool Money, and he is still Andrew Page Esquire. Mr. Page, good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm exceptionally well, though. I'm an hour behind. I was having a, I was having a wind before we recorded this that uh, an, hour of, an hour of daylight saving time is not a big deal at all. Unless you have to do stuff in the mornings, in which case getting up an hour earlier when you're in Queensland, which I am as we record this. Well, I was going to have a whinge. Can I tell you, I, I, I come from, I live in Barrel, which is in um, sort of, you know, 90 minutes out of Sydney in the south. It's still pretty cool down there. I walked out of the office after we did our first episode this morning. Uh, we did it super early. So it was uh, eight o'clock Brisbane time or Gold Coast time when we finished it. I went outside for a wander. It's 20 degrees. It is just <laughs> gloriously warm, mate. So I'm in, a, I'm in a really, really good mood, even though I had to get up an hour earlier this morning. <laughs> yeah, we really, we really got to get you uh, Queenslanders on the right time here. This is, uh, you it's know. It's not 1974, 1974 anymore, people. It's, you know, time to catch up. Mate, how are you? Yeah, pretty good. You've been for your pretty run? Pretty good. I've uh, been for the run. Ocean Ocean swim, did some weights, feeling Can good. Get on the bike, mate. You got to finish the, the Ironman triathlon properly. Oh, that's true. I'll do that after this. Yeah, yeah of course. Straight after. Yeah. <laughs> Try and stop me. Nice, mate. Um, let's let's get on to some mailbag questions. Uh, question number one comes from from Scott, who says, "What is strawman.com? That's a interesting question. That's Andrew, a good yeah. one, Scott. Yeah. Okay. Um, it's a it's an online private investment club. Of course it is, <laughs> mate. Let's get a proper question from Kerry this time. Uh, Kerry says, "Lads, love the pod." And appreciate the sensible responses to listener questions. Well, if you think they're sensible, Kerry, that's a win. I wouldn't think everyone would agree. There are Take no that. stupid questions, even if they come from the other side of the Tasman, right? <laughs> hey, bro. Do you like that? That's my little Kiwi cast. Okay, anyway, moving on. Nice. My question is this, says Kerry. Why not just shadow one of the major funds and copy their portfolio and trades? Berkshire returns 10 to 20% most years, outperforming most investors and any ETF or index fund. Daddy Warren clearly knows what he's doing. Can't I just buy a heap of Apple, Coca-Cola, Amex, et cetera, then use one of the hedge follow websites to respond to trades when he does this? That's a good question. Should yeah, Kerry could. do that? No, you, I'm, I mean, it's, look, there's, there is um, a very wide array of different strategies and approaches that you could take mm. and you lay them all end to end. Yeah, I think you could do worse than, than copying some of the best investors that, that are out there. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I, I, I kind of, think just cut to the chase and buy Berkshire and be done with it. I was going to say. <laughs> would be my take. But if you wanted to, you know, there might be some people I think like I just I generally want the same kind of exposure, but with a little mm. bit more control. Mm. I could empathize that. There is there is a name for this strategy, like um, which I'm drawing a blank on, but plenty of people do it. Yeah. And I, I, I look, I, I wouldn't do it. As I said, there's easier ways of doing it, but I, I can't. Oh, there's some mad stuff out there, right? So again, <laughs> on the, in the grand spectrum of things, there's there's, there's yeah. absolutely nothing wrong with that. I wasn't aware that there are um, that there are now easily accessible sites which just lay it out for you in excruciating detail. Is exactly what all the decisions mm. um, that are being made. Um, but yeah, that sounds reasonable. I, at the very least, I would say it's probably a really nice idea generator. Mm. Um, I might search out some of these just to sort of say, oh, Uncle Warren's buying that or, oh, you know, this other investor I really like is, is buying that. Not, not necessarily to follow blindly, but to sort of go, well, what is it that they might be looking at there that's interesting? It might prompt you to sort of look in that 
in that direction. Actually, years ago, mate, do you remember when Berkshire bought a automotive dealership? I do. Uh, was it CarMax? Ah, maybe. Anyway, I can't remember. Yeah, yeah. It Go prompted on. me to look at AHG. Oh, at the right. Time. Nice. Yeah. You think, why? What? And then it was just, it was a fascinating deep dive into mm -hmm. the economics of car lots and that. And I just, I never would have looked at that, I don't think, if I if I hadn't seen Warren do it. Mm. So, I, I mean, I often say that you can borrow an idea, you can't borrow the conviction. So I would sort of, I would start with that as an idea, but build up your own investment case, do your own work, make sure you're comfortable with it. Um, yeah, would you go that way? So I would, uh, some really good points you've made actually out of a, of a very good question. Um, Depends who you want to copy and why. So I'll take the bigger picture. So Kerry asked by saying, you know, funds generally, and then talks about Warren Buffett specifically. So Kerry, I don't know whether you meant only Warren or you meant funds in general, i.e. why pay their fees. And I think that's kind of, so there's different ways to skin this particular cat. Yeah. If, so if I wanted to follow a, a famous fund manager who charged one and a half percent, but whose top holdings were disclosed every month on their uh, fund letters, you could save yourself a decent amount of money and do that if you wanted to. If you believe that fund manager was going to continue to be right, had something genuinely better than everybody else, um, if you didn't, you wouldn't invest in the fund at all. So yeah, you could mirror a, a bulk of a fund's returns if you just replicated their publicly owned portfolio, their publicly disclosed portfolios, mm -hmm. potentially. With mm -hmm. one big disclaimer, which is, I think they're only obliged to disclose the top 10 holdings. Yeah. And depending on how diversified that fund is, it could be 90% of their fund or it could be 25% of the fund. Mm -hmm. In which case, you're not really getting a representative sample. Now, that again could be enough. And, and it's after the fact too. So correct. maybe there was an opportunistic element to it, like shares you know, fell 30% right. on, you know, and they right. bought then and now, yeah. So you don't and know. And they sold, they, sold, they sold tomorrow, you don't find out for a month's time and they buy something yep. else, you don't find out for a month's time. Yep. So now that being said, we know that fund fees can take a massive whack out of your returns. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, there might be an argument if you really cared enough to follow that, you could possibly think about doing something like that. Um, and I guess if you had enough conviction in the fund manager, that almost might be worth doing, Ram. If, if the top, if the disclosed holdings were large enough as a proportion of the portfolio and the tracking error, as they call it in the trade, effectively the fact you've got to wait a month to see what they're going to do and then try and track it. Um, if their long-term investors don't trade too frequently, I guess you could make that argument. It's a lot to do to save a bit of money, but again, I can't say absolutely you shouldn't because those fees do really add up over 40 years. So uh, I, wouldn't, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say it's a terrible idea to at least think about. Uh, you've got to make sure that fund manager is going to be great for long enough, by the way. Uh, and you've got to make sure you do faithfully copy a trade for trade, including when they're doing badly. Uh, you, if you jump off that horse and try and pick a winner and jump around, then you make the same mistakes if you did the same in funds themselves. For Berkshire Hathaway in particular, um, here's the problem. The business of Berkshire is actually far more, you mentioned buying a car dealership, Ram. It's far more uh, value of uh, far more of the value of Berkshire is held in its wholly owned businesses, not its publicly traded equity portfolio. So mm. if you want to copy Buffett's returns, you have to own all the wholly owned businesses he has as well. Uh, sometimes, by the way, Apple and Coke will be the biggest contributors to value. Other times it'll be Burlington Northern Santa Fe Railroad or Berkshire Hathaway Energy that Berkshire owns all of. And if those businesses do really well, you're not going to get any of that by owning just the publicly owned equity portfolio. So you won't get the same returns as Berkshire, specifically because most of the assets are not publicly traded. Uh, so you couldn't match it up necessarily. Um, I guess you'd probably ask yourself what you were trying to achieve, why you were trying to achieve it, why you were trying to do that 
part of the process and you could you absolutely could um as andrew says if buffett owns something then you probably should like it i used to own coca-cola the coca-cola company in the u.s um i'm sure a lot of that was was motivated by the fact buffett also owned it but i also own berkshire hathaway shares so a bit of both is probably the way i'd, uh, I'd think about that one but yeah you could uh you won't get the same returns it might be worth if you found a stock rock star fund manager that was going to outperform for years and years and years and you could save their fees you might do it uh, as long as that fund disclosure was representative and, and timely enough to f- make sure you could actually keep up with what the fund manager was doing. Um, mate, we've got a question from uh, from Brent. Can I, can I, can I start by saying um, the way he phrased this question was brilliant. He starts with, good afternoon, Scott and Andrew. A stunning day in the sunshine state. The way this uh, email was copied, Brent, from our, uh, in our customer service, our member services fools, I immediately read this as good afternoon sunshine, which I thought was an interesting way of starting the, <laughs> starting the email. So you did give me a laugh, uh, maybe unintentionally, mate. Uh, I really liked that. I thought it was a, a, pretty funny, um, a pretty funny start to the email. But it was good afternoon, Scott and Andrew. A stunning day in the sunshine state, but I'm inside doing some more research on shares and the market. He says in brackets, sacrificing some time now so I can hopefully spend many more days in the sun on the golf course. Love it. Fair enough. I get a snap. By the way, go out in the back deck or find a, a park somewhere. Uh, get some sun as well. It's too, too nice to be inside. I hit a snag in my investing, reading, and education. Unfortunately, unlocking access to a heap of new acronyms that I'm finding very difficult to understand. May I please trouble you to discuss the following concepts and particularly why they're used? I love this comment too. Some of YouTube's most boring videos are dedicated to these topics, and yet, I'm still none the wiser. May I tell you what, to punish going through boring stuff if it actually works for you. If you go through something boring, it still doesn't help. That's just, that's just doubly painful. <laughs> and you're stuck inside, Brent. You've, uh, you've really committed to the cause, mate. I appreciate the, uh, the effort you're making. Uh, here's, he's given us four acronyms, mate. I think we might okay. have to spend a little bit of time on them. Um, we won't be able to look. Here's the, a couple of them uh, require a bit of maths. Uh, and audio is not the best format for, for a bit of mathematical uh, understanding. But we'll do our level best to keep it kind of conceptual and, and see if we can describe what these things are. Ram, let's um, let's start with. I'll, I'll throw you on the deep end of the first one. Let's start with the first one. So you've, got, you've got four acronyms: EV or Enterprise uh. Value. What, Mister Page, is Enterprise Value? What's it used for, and why do we care? Yeah, it's it's a really good question. Enterprise Value is a way of looking at the total value of a company in a capital agnostic fashion. And I'll unpack that a little bit. <laughs> so we, a lot of people will be familiar with the term market capitalization. And it's just a way of saying, well, how, how, what is the total value of the business? And to get the total value of the business, I take the number of shares that represent the business and I multiply it by the current share price. So 100 million shares on issue, a dollar a share, the whole company is 100 million. If I had 100 million and I could find the liquidity, I could buy the whole damn thing, right? Um, no problem. Enterprise value goes a step further and it says, well, what if it's a $100 million company, but it's got $50 million of cash in the bank? Actually, the, the enterprise itself is only $50 million if I net, net that off, right? Because right. I could take the $50 million out, presuming that there's a bit of assumptions here, presuming that the business could still continue to operate. Um, so it's really, if, in fact, if I have $50 million, I can buy the whole thing now. Even though, I mean, I maybe have to borrow 50 million short term, buy the whole business for 100 million on market, pay myself back the 50 million. I've got the whole damn thing in terms of its, its, all of its assets except its cash. I think, that, I think that makes a lot of intuitive sense. 
The other one is, is well, what if they've got debt? What if they've got $100 million worth of debt? So there's $100 million worth of sort of uh, value as according to the market. And on top of that, there's another $100 million. So if I wanted to buy the whole business and own the Green whole clear. business outright yeah. without any liabilities – or any debt liabilities, I'd have to pay two hundred million dollars, two hundred, uh, you know, one hundred million to buy the company, and then another hundred million to pay off all, all the debt. So the end, so it's, it's looking, as I say, through things can be things can be debt can debt and big cash balances can make things deceptive. Mm. And enterprise value is a is a is a a useful way of of uh, cutting through that. So uh, the, the so what is, is just like when you're looking at a business, why would you even want to know the market cap for and to begin with? It, did, it helps with things like saying, well, what what is this business trading at relative to its mm. earnings or its book value or its asset value or anything like that? And this is just a way of standardizing it a step further to account for large sums of cash and debt. I would look at both. And I, I think I think it's useful to, to know. Mm. What does an investor do with enterprise value, though? In, in, the, in the process of making an investment decision, um, if I want to buy the shares, I'm paying a price and those, those shares generating an earnings per share. So PE is a good start. Enterprise value is I, I, you do, a beautiful job I described, mate. Absolutely. I can't, I can't add to it. So well done. Um, but why do I care as an investor? Why would it be part of my investor's toolkit? And how would I apply that to a measure of value? You're tr- what you're trying to ve- – it's such a good question. And can I say what you just asked a good question, the viewer's question is a good one. And and there are so many of these concepts, let me say at the start, where, yeah, you can just Google it, right? You'll get Investopedia will give you exactly the definition I sort of gave you. But I, I think that picking them apart is very valuable. There's a difference between being able to recite a definition and understanding the so what of the definition. And I would lie to you if I felt, if I said that I just, I read the definition and got it. I mean, doing this stuff for 25 years and I, I still sort of have various epiphanies from time to time. It's like, oh, that's what that really means. And that's what that's really getting at. And I guess to answer your question, I would say, I mean, what is the value of this enterprise here? What do I, what do I want to acquire? I want to acquire the things that enable it to generate a profit. And, and that's, that's the core of, of, of what I'm hoping to acquire and, and have exposure to because that is the thing that generates value, the capital equipment resources that spin off more cash flows. Now, if I've got a business that's sort of trading at $10 million on the market but has $100 million in debt, yes, I can buy it all outright for $10 million, but I still, I'm actually, I'm buying the assets of the business, but I'm also buying the obligations and future liabilities mm. of the business. That's why it matters. Every now and again, you'll see this stuff in the paper. Uh, I forget the name of the exact power station, but one of the big ones, Lo Yang or whatever it is, $1. And, you know, it's the classic <laughs> right, pub conversation. Right. It's like, yeah. I'll buy it. A dollar? Here you go. Right now, I don't know what I'm going to do with it, but I'll buy the whole power station. Like that'll be fun. Me and my mates will just go through there and throw bricks at all the windows and spray paint the walls. Hard hat on, yeah, pressing buttons in the control room. Who cares? And oh, so what? What's the worst that can happen? I lose my dollar. No, the reason that these assets get sold for a dollar is because there's a bunch of baggage attached to it, and the baggage is usually some remediation works or pension 
fund liabilities or a big stinking pile of debt that has to be paid back. And that is that is why enterprise value matters. It might be that the price tag was a dollar. The enterprise value of that deal, I can guarantee you, is a hell of a lot higher. I'm going to just add this very quickly without getting too deep in the algebra or the numbers. Um, when we, I use price and earnings deliberately because price obviously is what you pay. The, uh, the earnings are the, the per share profit you get. So you're, kind of, you're getting a return on your money. Uh, some people, I've occasionally used it, I don't use it all that often, uh, use a, basically substitute in uh, for each of price and earnings a different measure. Oh, yes. So you might see EV to EBITDA, I'll unpack that in a minute, the same as you see price and earnings. In other words, yep. the, the value or the, 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 the worth of a business or the cost of the business divided by the money that's generated by the business. So price earnings is really simple, right? It's just the price you pay in the bottom line profit. It's a pretty good measure. EV to EBITDA, enterprise value to earnings before interest, tax, depreciation, and amortization is another way of doing this same, the very same thing. And the reason you don't use EV to earnings is because you're adding back the debt. And so you actually also want to take out the cost of servicing that debt. Because if you're going to pay the whole business, including Andrew's 100 million market cap, 100 million of debt, the enterprise value is $200 million rather than the price of $100 million. But if you were to do that, you would be effectively paying off the debt. And so you don't want to include that debt in the calculation of the denominator, in this case of earnings or EBITDA rather than earnings. So you kind of, they do that deliberately to kind of give a different, a different level of the, of the P&L, if you like, a different sense of, okay, well, if I did pay off all the liabilities or in the case of a net cash, if I bought the business, you know, gave myself the cash, how, how um, efficient, how effective, what sort of returns do I get from the business itself? And so if you're going to change to the enterprise value metric, you should also at least understand different earnings numbers you can use on the denominator of that fraction to give yourself a, a relative valuation measure. Yeah. I don't love EV to EBITDA for reasons that Charlie Munger has called EBITDA BS earnings because um, it excludes too much stuff. Um, it is appropriate not to use earnings if you're going to use enterprise value because it does include, for example, interest costs or doesn't allow for the, for the cash being uh, held in the business. So you do need to make an adjustment to earnings. I would just personally, I think we've talked about before, Matt, P is pretty good. You can get way too caught up. Uh, if anything, do price to free cash flow if you want to kind of change up the earnings number. Um, yes, understand the enterprise value. The other thing, by the way, is the debt a business might have, for example, in theory generates more profits because they've taken on that debt if they've done a good job, unlike governments, as we said on Friday. Uh, if they've done a mm -hmm. good job of taking on debt for the right reasons, you're kind of excluding the, the debt, but then not, you know, there, there's, there's, there was, a, in theory, a return on the earnings line for the debt a company holds. And so yeah. just be mindful of that as well. There's interest cost on one hand, there's the extra revenue. Hopefully the you bought a factory with the debt, well, that factory makes stuff and sells stuff. And if you sell it mm -hmm. profitably, then, you know, do you, would you rather have no debt than debt? Yeah, but also don't forget that debt is actually hopefully productive debt. So be mindful of that. Yeah, 100%. And look, debt is not a four-letter word. Debt mm -hmm. is, I've, I have oh, urged- I have urged. <laughs> so I have urged several- <laughs> Of our recent guests at Straw Member yeah. CEOs is is that you know equity is forever, debt is mm -hmm. temporary. In other words, if you need money, you can go to the market and raise it. And it feels free and cheap and the rest of it, but it's like that dilution is pretty much permanent. You don't mm -hmm. you don't often see companies like uh, buying back enough shares to sort of square the square things so off true. there. Yeah, you know, and and so don't be afraid of debt, right? Mm -hmm. I, I think where it, it's not it's not the problem is when there's too much debt. And the problem is when the debt has been used in unproductive ways. 
But what a conservative level of debt invested sensibly, what's wrong with that? Mm. I mean, it's what mm. basically every Australian does with their house. Well, correct. Whether I do it, they do it sensibly or not. But you, 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 there's there's nothing wrong with borrowing a little bit of money to buy a house that you're going to live in for thirty years when you can comfortably afford it. What's wrong with that? Nothing. Mm. You know, by borrowing ninety nine percent of it, and you know, and making and requiring that every last cent of your earnings needs to go to service that at current interest rate levels, that's risky. That's that's silly, and that's the way to sort of always look at these things: is bring it back. That's why I hate all of these filters and metric mm-hmm. you know, rules of thumb. They just you've got to always bring it back to the to the dumbest level that you can. And I say dumbest in the most in the nicest way. <laughs> yeah. Like it should be dumb, Simpl- right? Like yeah, it, yeah, it's, yeah, exactly. it's the simplest way. Like, like what the hell does this thing what, why is this valuable? Why would I even want to own this? Yeah. Presumably because it's going to provide us a stream of earnings in the future. Like, okay, well what's what is the structure of this enterprise? Is it being constructed through mainly equity or is it debt? What's the combination of the two? What are the pros and cons of all mm. of that kind of stuff? You know, you you're just you're just trying to with just full circle here with EV, it's just one of a thousand different ways to look at a company, and it's it's worthwhile. Always, I say, take a holistic approach. Take as many kind of data points as you kind of can. But the idea with this is just to sort of look at it beyond the capital structure. Yeah. What's the whole damn thing worth? And that's where it can have value. Love it, really nice. And as always, these things often it's the comparison between the metrics that also helps. Mm-hmm. So, for example, the PE might be 10, but the EV to EBITDA might be 8 or 12 or 14 yeah. or 7 yes. or 3. Um, and that you go, oh, that's, I wonder why that is. And, and why that is such a big difference? Right exactly. Yes, exactly. exactly. Let's go to the next one. NPV or net present value. Um, Huge. One day, you and I will sit down and we'll organize, we'll, we'll create some better terms and some better acronyms and we'll be mm-hmm. famous because this is one of those ones, a bit like dollar cost averaging, which we kind of all know what it means, but the whole idea of dollar... Uh, Someone put three words together, dollar cost average. We know what that is, but what the hell is dollar cost? What the hell is that supposed to mean? So Mm. NPV to me is kind of the same thing. It's a really, really super important concept. It's the the, the phrase itself, I mean, it it kind of makes sense a little bit net. Obviously, what's left over present, i.e. now value, obviously. Okay, so they're not wrong. They're just really clunky terms that if you know Steve Jobs or someone else in marketing came up with them, you wouldn't have these ones as, as terms. So let's yeah. let's uh, not do that yet. We'll do that over a couple of years. But in the meantime, let's for Brent and our listeners define and explain the value of net present value. Uh, I'll kick this one off first, mate. If that please, uh, if that works please for do. You. Uh, I will give you a quick heads up. If you haven't seen those. The next one is internal rate of return. So you can start thinking about that one while I okay, while great, I do love it. Love um, it. So, Brent, the idea, the, the fundamental idea in economics and in life, and I think, you know, economics has some terrible theories. It also has some really, really clever ones that explain life. And um, economics should be called, was it political economics, political psychology, or something at some point. That basically, it's a, it's a way of describing how we think about the world. And we use money as the denominator, as we said on Friday. But the study of economics is actually the study of human behavior and, and yep. things like trade-offs and opportunity costs and stuff, which is largely just kind of, you know, an explanation of the way humans act rather than, rather than the way we count it. Mm-hmm. Net present value is important because psychologically, theoretically, and in practice, a dollar is worth more to me today than in 10 years' time, okay? For two reasons. One is simply we're all selfish creatures, and if I'm going to have a benefit and the benefit's the same, I might as well have it now than later. Yep. You know, if, if, I, if, I could have a, if I could have a can of Coke now or a can of Coke in three years' time, and it's only one, I might as well have it now because why would you wait for the sake of it? There's no benefit mm-hmm. in waiting, so you have it now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a, a dollar is worth more to me now than it is later. The other thing is, in this very inflationary world, this would have been a theoretical concept two years ago. Now it's a very real concept. Uh, in an inflationary world, 
a dollar is worth not only is it a, you know a dollar a dollar an hour in three years time a dollar in three years time is worth less because the price of things i can buy that can of coke will cost me a dollar 20 in three years time not a dollar so not only do i prefer to my consumption now than later but there's a cost to waiting the, the, the longer it takes me to get the benefit, whether it's a monetary benefit or just, that's it, the can of Coke or whatever it is, the, the less value it is because the base I'm working with, money or could be anything, is eroded by the passing of time thanks to primarily inflation. So think about those two concepts. So the first, I'd rather have consumption now than later. The second, uh, inflation means those gains are literally worth less in, in absolute terms, let alone uh, the cost of waiting in time. The last one is, in theory, if I put money aside, I want a, an actual return over that period of time. I want to keep up with inflation. And then I kind of want more, because even if I do keep up with inflation, then we're back to the dollar for dollar thing. So I still want the dollar now. It's going to be worth more to me in future. So it's, it justifies me actually making the decision to wait. So if you can kind of keep those three things in your head, or two and a half things, because the third was kind of a combination of the first and second, keep those in your head and then say, if that's all true, and it is, because that's human nature, how would I go about making sure I'm getting more value in future than what I'm giving up by waiting now? And you say, well, you should be able to somehow calculate that to, you know, even if you don't literally do the maths, just conceptually be able to say, all right, well, I want more then that I get that I have now and I want to have meaningfully more so that I cover inflation so that I'm better off after inflation then than I am now and so you'd say to yourself right well how would I work that out you said well hang on how much would I need in a year's time if I put my dollar aside today if I didn't spend mm. it and what you'd want to do is create a, a a bit of maths that gives you the net present value of that future asset value or the cash flows you get over that period of time. And that's kind of all it is. Now, the simplest way to do it is to think about um, one year, cash in the bank, interest paid at the end of the, the end of the year. If I get a dollar now, I'll make it a hundred bucks a bit easier. If I get a hundred bucks now and I put it aside at uh, a 3% interest rate, I'm going to have $103 in a year's time. Now, if inflation is 4%, the $103 I have in a year's time is actually worth less after inflation than the $100 I've got now. So the net present value of that $100 is probably like 99 bucks, just in rough, really rough maths. So the, the, the investment I'm making is actually going to cost me money. I'm going to have less in a year than I've got now after inflation is taken into account. And that fundamentally is all net present value is. And so if you're saying to me, Scott, I want you hundred bucks, I'll give you some return. I'm going to say, well, Brent, I would like a, I'm going to calculate my return because I want to cover inflation and I want a return on the risk because, you know, I trust you and you're a good bloke, but, you know, things happen. So I want a bit yeah, more than that. might not be able to pay me back. I need, a, I need to be compensated for that risk. Right. It's huge. And so that's what you put into the formula and say, if I'm going to give you my hundred dollars, I want this much at, in a year's time. And that's how I work out the value or the net present value of the potential investment. Improve on that for you, mate. Oh, you've, done, you've done a great job. I mean, it, it doesn't have to be too complicated. Yeah. About, I mean, the math's actually simple. So just yes. how much is this? Th how much do I think this thing is worth in, say, three years? Uh, let's say I think a company is worth, you know, a million dollars in three years' time. Mm -hmm. And then the next question is, well, what do I, what rate of return do I need to, to lock my money up? 
for that period of time. Mm-hmm. You might say 10%. I tend to say about 10% yeah, for all else being equal because it's about the long-term market average. Um, but I will increase it if it's riskier. Mm-hmm. Um, but well, then I just, well, I just divide it by 1.1. Well, one plus whatever return I want. Mm-hmm. So I go one, two, three. It says, well, if I put 750, if I buy the whole thing for 751,000 today, mm-hmm. I will by definition get a 10% return over the next three years. Cause I think it's going to be worth a million in three years time. Yep. So that's, that's all it's doing. So it's just, and the, the question then is, well, what, what is the appropriate kind of rate? You've mentioned inflation. Opportunity cost is the other big one. Mm-hmm. Cause it's not like, maybe I can get 3% here or 10% here, but it's just like, mm, well, I can probably get 10%. Other one, mate. You risk free rate, right? Well, this is either, so this is, we touched on this in a recent yeah. pod as well. I'm getting 5% plus in a government bond. It's like notionally the risk, risk free rate. So it's like, well, it definitely has to be better than that. At the, why would I make any investment on mm-hmm. the share market if I thought I was going to get less than that when I'm guaranteed to get this return over there? So it, it's, as, it's as simple as that, really. When it comes to, I'm going to make a hyperbolic statement. When it comes to <laughs> investing, if I was to say, what are the most important concepts that you need to deeply understand? I would put net present value certainly in the top five concepts, yeah. you know? An opportunity cost right alongside of it. If you understand net present value and opportunity cost, you're ahead of not 80% of investors, right? Because it's just, that is, I am allocating money today and I want the one that's going to have the most attractive net present value. How do I possibly compare, uh, say, this is good value? You hear people say it all the time. Oh, share X, Y, and Z is really good value today. They usually say that because it's fallen and they're anchoring on a prior price, what they mean by good value. No, it's good value if the net present value mm. is above what the market price is, i.e. the market in all its genius is saying that this share is worth a dollar each. I think on a net present value basis, it's worth at least a dollar fifty. So I'm now getting an opportunity to buy a dollar fifty in today's money for a dollar. That's investing. You, you, you almost, you know, axiomatically cannot buy a share without having at least some notion of net present value, even in vague terms. And then to contrast that with what other alternatives might be out there, which is where opportunity cost comes in. So as an investor, my bottom line raison d'etre here is I am trying to buy stocks that are the most attractive on a value and risk adjusted basis that give me the biggest discount to their true net present value. That's what I'm trying to do. Nice, mate. Love it. I'm going to add a bit more to this and we'll move on. Um, It's intrinsically linked with discounted cash flow analysis. Yes. And effectively what the discounted cash flow analysis does is gives you the net present value. So if you hear DCF thrown around or NPV, they're kind of the same. One's the answer, one's the process, but effectively it's the same It's the same thing writ large. It's also, I want to just really quick, quick, quick couple of points, mate. You said, how do you know a stock is cheap? People say, well, I looked at the PE and it's cheap. That's not mm. necessarily wrong, except that what the discounted cash flow process does, either if you literally do it line for line or you just think about it, is two companies today have a PE of 10. They're not as cheap as each other. And you don't have to have one to disappear entirely to make that make that case. You might say, right, P, a, a P of 10 is cheap. Okay, fine. One company that was going to grow at 15% a year for the next 10 years, the other company is going to grow at 1% a year for the next 10 years. Now, when as soon as I say that, everyone says, well, obviously the company's going to grow faster or cheaper. I say, exactly. The difference between those two isn't apparent until you either, again, just conceptually go through it or literally put it in your DCF 
because that gives you a much higher net present value for the growing business. There is more cash flows coming to you for a business that's growing its profits more quickly. So at the same PE, by the way, it also means a PE, company with a PE of 20, growing 15% a year, is probably cheaper than a company with a PE of 10 not growing at all. Yep. So again, which is cheaper? The PE of 20. Hang on, how is that possible? Well, PE looked backwards at one year's profit. A discounted cash flow analysis or an MPV, again, I say analysis, even just to conceptually think it through, um, that will give you a very different sense. So when Ram says, how can you see a company is cheap? I'm just mindful, mate, that people would have said, well, I've just look at the PE. And what the NPV process does is it, abs- it, 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 takes, uh, <laughs> it takes Peter Parker's PE and, and bites it with a spider, right? <laughs> the, the, the net present value idea takes you from, oh, ostensibly on the face of it looks not overly expensive to, oh my God, 20p is cheap as chips and 10 is really expensive or vice versa. Yes. Or again, even a Rams point, opportunity cost-wise, one is obviously better value than the other because you're thinking about it. My last point on this one uh, is- Yeah, I just, I just, that please. is, PE, you remember that you, people will be familiar with this meme, you know, it's the, the bell curve and you sort of got mm-hmm. the dunce on one side, the Jedi genius on the other and in the middle and the, the, the dunce is basically saying it's all about PE. In the middle, it's like, no, it's net present value, internal rate of return, da, da, da. And at the end, it, the Jedi is saying, no, it's all about PE. I think there's a lot of truth to that in the yeah, sense yeah. that PE is very flawed and yes. very easily misread. Yes. But once you understand all of those other concepts, it can be, it's a useful heuristic. Mm-hmm. And this is what Buffett, I think, as someone of his capacity can make a very quick judgment based on PE. Yeah. Not because he's just stupidly applying, well, b- below this is, is low and above this is high. It's like, in the context of my growth expectations, this is high or low. And that's why PE is so powerful yeah. once you've gone through that journey and understood the other kind of concepts. You know, I should work at some point on a, on a one, a four quadrant um, chart because, or, 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 a, or a series of curves or a table because- I tried to do that once actually. Did you? Yeah, because yeah, mathematically yeah. it's not that hard, right? Uh, yeah. You know, you go from a, a P of zero to 100 or one to 100, I suppose, and you get growth of, of zero to 100% a year. And yep. there are, you, you know, orange, red, green. This is what, this is your point what Buffett does. He doesn't say, well, they're both P of 15, but I like that one better. I think they might, he just instinctively has memorized conceptually the idea of a P of 15 is cheap if it's going to grow up 15% a year. Yeah. Or 20 is cheap if it's going to grow at 25% a year. Or, you know, eight is yeah. expensive if the business is going to die next year. And once yeah. you've kind of, this is the benefit we said before, mate. We've all gone through that, do your formulas. And then eventually yep. you kind of say, well, I can move on. And that's the, that's the moving from the dunce to, well, I, yep. I won't say we're Jedis, but to, yep. from dunce to experience is once you've done that, you kind of just can, can kind of almost, you kind of remember a few of the, bit of the maths, a bit of the directional stuff and be like, okay, mm-hmm. well, P of 18 seems a bit expensive, but gee, it's got a lot of time left to grow at whatever percent. Yep. And so if that's, if that's true, this is, this is cheap. Not because we kind of go, oh, I assume it is. It's just somewhere in the back of our heads, we've kind of internalized the shape of that curve uh, and that kind of table of red, green, yellow to kind of work out what's roughly good, roughly bad, 100%. and what's dodgy 100%. and close and whatever. A company with a P of 10 doesn't have to grow to give you a good, give you a good result. Right? Oh, insane. Insanely good. Even if I'm steady stating or I'm just yes. keeping up with inflation, yeah. think about it. I'll buy a business for 10 years worth of its earnings. Mm-hmm. In other words, it pays itself back in 10 years and then forever yeah. I'm getting that return. You I mean, it's just th- think about it in those terms. It's yeah. fantastic. Cash flow is amazing. Uh, yeah. Last point I want to make on this one, mate, is just to, uh, this is why markets roughly right more often than not. And a lot of tech stocks got smashed over the last 18, 24 months because interest rates went up. 
And again, I'm not going to bore you with the algebra, but effectively, imagine a world, I'm going to just do inflation because it's easier than people can think about it more easily. Imagine a world where you think you're going to get money in 10 years time. There's this great new business. It's got a great new idea. It's going to be successful. Let's assume it's going to be successful. It's going to work. And you're there, but it's going to take 10 years to start paying a profit. In 10 years time, you get some money. Now, if inflation is zero, just for fun, and the risk-free rate was zero just for fun, you might say, okay, well, I'll pay 100 bucks. In 10 years' time, I mean, any gain is a gain, right? If I get $101 back in 10 years' time, I'm ahead because there's no inflation, there's no opportunity cost, there's no risk-free rate, so I'm going to make some money. Now, again, stupid example, but work with mm. me. Mm. Take a different world where the inflation rate is 10% for the next 10 years. So every year, the 100 bucks starts at 100. I'm going to try and do this in my head, so work with you, count the numbers. You go from 100 to 90 to 81 to 73. Three to sixty-six to fifty-eight. It gets to <laughs> eventually. So that hundred dollars now worth thirty-eight dollars in ten years' time, with nothing other than ten percent inflation. Mm-hmm. So think about unprofitable companies, and think about the way the market thought about these. You'd pay a hundred bucks for a hundred dollars worth of value in ten years' time, but you wouldn't. You'd want something, but you know what I mean. Working mm-hmm. you know, conceptually, mm-hmm. you, don't, you don't need. You don't. You know, so you kind of go, oh, the profits for ten years. Away. That's okay. I'm happy to wait. There's not, nothing else going on anyway. I can't earn any other money anywhere else. Um, I can't get any other return anywhere else in the bank because interest rates are at zero anyway. So I'll put some money in shares because in 10 years time, at least I'll get something back for it. Now, all of a sudden you're like, well, hang on. And again, I'm used 10% because it's easy. Um, I, 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 inflation will be 10% a year for the next decade. I'm only going to get $38 back. I need, I need more return now for that. I want a higher return or I want more return or I want profit sooner because I'm not waiting 10 years for those money to start coming in. I want, I want the cash right now. And so that's why if you're a loss-making business or a low-profit business that hopefully has higher profits in years to come, those out years, the discount part of the discounted cash flow penalizes those for multiple years of inflation before we get there. And that's part of why tech stocks in particular got smashed over the last couple of years when people went, I'm not going to wait forever now. I actually want a return. I want it sooner. And that's part of why we saw the dynamic change in the market. Well, it just, it, it's so... With the benefit of hindsight and a bit of distance, like mm-hmm. I just, I'm, I'm just floored by the expectation <laughs> that the market had, right? Yeah. And I said to you before, is like what really just throws me onto the floor is just the fact that people would lend like the US government money for 30 years at 1%. <laughs> yes, like what? Yeah. 30 years? I think there what were $100 really hundred year bonds being mm-hmm. issued in, in Europe somewhere. It's just it, 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 virtually negative interest rates. It's just sort of- Think about that for a mm-hmm. second. Like it is, it is mad. It is the height of madness. <laughs> and this is the smartest guys in mm-hmm. the room, right? Like unbelievable. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, it's bizarre. Mate, let's uh, let's move on to internal rate of return. Now, this gets even more academic pretty quickly. But you're a smart bloke, and you'll be able to you'll be able to do this one. So, explain to our listeners what internal rate of return is. So, I said before that there were what you know, 10 concepts I'd say mm-hmm. are really important. I'd put IRR in there. It's a, oh, it's a much- really? Yeah, it, it's really like hard to- five, so tell me why. Well, it's very hard to calculate. There's no there's no spreadsheet to easily to do it. And, and maybe I should, I'm getting too far ahead of myself here. <laughs> the formal definition and why it threw me for ages, IRR, is because it's, it's, the, it's the return required to make all future cash flows equal to zero. Mm-hmm. In other words, money goes, let's say I'm starting a business, I'm starting a lemonade stand. All this money goes out. I put $100 to buy the box and the lemons and the juicer and all that kind of stuff. So there's on my ledger, negative $100. Yep. Now, hopefully, you know, I'll make $10 in year one and $20 in year two, whatever it happens to be. 
and and as we so this is why NPV is really handy that we did this mm-hmm. one first, mm-hmm. right? So we need to talk about the what's the net present value of all of those future cash flows. The next years discounted by one year, two years out discounted by two years, a hundred years out, whatever whatever mm-hmm. time frame we sort of want to work at here. We we have to know what those future cash flows are going to be. And assuming that we do it, we have an estimate for it. We now have to work out the intra, the, the the discount rate that makes everything add up to zero, that initial $100 out, and then all the other positive ones after that. Mm-hmm. Now that's the formal definition. And it's like, what What does that mean? Why well, what zero, are, mate? It's effectively paying back the upfront cost, right? It, it's trying to say, we put it this way, the higher, the better. Yeah. You want an IRR that is really, really high because it means for you to get to zero, mm-hmm. your returns have to be very, very high. Mm-hmm. Uh, 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 the, each, each year's cash flow has to be discounted at a very high rate. In other words, yeah. you have to expect a really high rate of return. Yeah. So if the internal rate of return, so I'll, I'll, well, this is probably oversharing, um, but you, you, you're very flamboyant in like how you like to sort of present straw man. And we've had a couple of years where we're, we're Making money, which is really nice, right? Because it was it was it was started more than five six years ago. Gosh, to no, seven. To be fair, mate. If you hadn't if you hadn't had the fleet of Lambos, you probably made some more money earlier. So it's, probably, it's, probably. It's, part, it's partly it's partly operating decision. But yes, keep going. <laughs> but I'll, the, the internal rate of returns negative. Right. If you if you add up the amount of I'm not, I'm not trying. I'm not after sympathy or anything. It's just a really good example, right? So when you look at a, a, any kind of business, I'm using mine as an example, and you go, oh. Here's the FY 2023 financials. Here are the assets, the balance sheet, the liabilities. Here's the income statement. Here's your revenue. Here's your cost. Oh, there's a profit at the end of it. Oh, that's really nice. Well, I hope, yeah, it's better than it was. But but in terms of if, 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 if I put a bullet in it today, the entire enterprise was a cash killing operation right. because what I need to factor in and when, when you're starting a business, I think this is why internal rate of return is so important. When you're even investing on a business in the, in the, on the ASX, that's why it's such an important concept, mm-hmm. is, is because it might be that in a few years' time, the profit is fantastic and the EPS looks fantastic and the PE is brilliant. But if the entire cash flow experience has been negative over that period, well, it hasn't been a really great investment, mm-hmm. has it? Mm-hmm. And And- and that's so far the case with Stroman. Hopefully, we're still kicking in 10 years' time and that, that calculus sh- shifts. But it, it gives you a lens on an enterprise over its expected life that says whether or not this is economically worthwhile. Mm-hmm. Perfect. That's, that's, why I put it, that's, why, that's why I put it in the top 10. Yep, lovely description. I, I think that's great. Um, it's, yes, it measures the ability of a, a project or a company or a whatever to deliver a return on the investment required to make that project work. Yep. Um, the a business is a great example. It's probably an even better one, mate. Well, not, not better one in, in the context, but to help illustrate how it works. To imagine, a, imagine how long it takes you to get, a, get to zero, as you say, from a, from a particular project that has an mm. end date yes. potentially or has a... Has a um, uh, you know, a, a response because it actually can include some projects or, or some investments that can include the sale price as well. Yes, so you kind of got this. You, know, you borrow some money, you buy a, a PE. Use it all the time. You, you borrow money, you buy a business, you pay yourself some dividends over time, then you pay it back. Yep. And so that whole project, you start with a hundred dollars, you get some, you, you buy the business, you get some cash flows, you sell it in ten years' time for one hundred and fifteen dollars. You've made ten bucks a year on the way through, and so you're asking yourself, okay, well, what sort of return did we get? 
or to your point, mate, it's, it, the definition is to make it equal to zero, but effectively mm. to pay back the money, mm. uh, what rate of return would have, have been? And it's, it's, just a, it's just a useful way of thinking about that. Now, at a business level, it's a little bit harder because they tend to be, hopefully the best ones are, are timeless. Uh, so the discounting matters because again, like you know, straw man, um, Andrew spent you know hundred million dollars setting this thing up, and now it's sitting over a billion dollars a year. So it's it's a it's a size <laughs> business. Yeah, right. um, but you know, it, 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 if it goes forever, that gets more difficult to kind of you know use as a concept because you get to zero, but at some point it, it kind of, you or you almost blow past that. Yes, uh, because the, the, you know the, the capital's been spent. You're now in the harvest period. There's obviously ongoing capital to spend. I I like it. I. I'm not as bullish as you. I like it conceptually. Yes, I like I it conceptually. Say. Yes, yeah. yes. A great building block for thinking about how to invest. Um, Brentas is similar to return on equity. It kind of is. It's it's calculated differently because of the way you are trying to work out, as Ram said, how mm. what return you get to, when you get to zero, where the cash flows are made back. Uh, ROE is kind of more an ongoing metric. Mm. I personally prefer ROE to IRR, mate. Do you have mm. a do you have a, a, a league table for those two? Uh, oh, they. IROE is more practical. Yeah. IRR is too fuzzy. Is too fuzzy. I like the concept of IRR, internal rate of return, better. But it's just, it's too fuzzy because I have to, I have to know exactly what the cash flows are going to be from here until kingdom come. And when? I mean, that's the challenge of the DCF in general. But it's it's more where I find it really useful. I think it's a very if, if ever you at a AGM or an investor briefing or and and a management team is embarking on a big cap a capex program. We're going to expand into the US. Uh, we, we're going to build a new distribution center. We're going to do this. The question you want to ask is what's the IRR? Now mm-hmm. they won't know because they they have to guess it. But if they if they don't have an answer, that is a worry. It's like because that is the lens through which yeah. every decision a management team should be making should be looked at through that Mm, lens. mm, mm. Now, you want to make sure that they're using what are reasonable assumptions. But if the IRR is forecast to be 5% or 6% or 7%, I would be saying- You'd be better off just taking shareholder money and buying an index fund. Like, what, 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 why are you guys why spending? Do the project? Yes. Give me the bloody dividend, right? Yes. You give it to someone who knows what they're doing because you clearly don't. If, mm-hmm. if you are making any internal projects or any internal investment decisions and the return isn't 10%, like, stop you need your, yeah. you stop yeah. doing it, you idiots. Yeah. And, and by the way, that's probably more often than not internal yes. co- corporate projects are less than that. <laughs> Do you know? So I know I've gone a bit off your off your your point there, but it is that is when a, when a business has established um, operations and hopefully some kind of competitive advantages, where they can take keep the money that they have made mm-hmm. on my behalf, on my behalf and other shareholders' behalf. My my strong desire and preference is if you can take this and get something that's probably 15% or more by investing it in this company, in your business, by expanding products, by doing R&D, by going into other markets, for the love of God, do not give it to me. Don't buy back <laughs> shares. Don't give it to me because yeah. I'm going to struggle to. But if you can do it because, you know, you're the only one in the world that can make iPhones or you're the only person mm-hmm. in the world that can do this, you know, special thing, do it, right? So they- any management team that doesn't have that lens does not deserve to be a management team and you should run a mile because they will eventually kill the business. Yeah, I think that's, um, I think that's, that's really important. My last one um, Brent asked about is actually 
almost, there's a, it's a crowded field, almost my least favorite uh, okay. acronym in investing. And it is WAC, the Weighted Average Cost uh, of Capital. Never use it. Me either. And uh, I was, I think, were you there? We, we, we've been to a couple of Berkshire meetings. Charlie Munger was asked once what Berkshire's WAC was. He said, I have no idea. I don't bother working it out. Uh, and that's not, that was that was the nail on the coffin for that one for me because if Charlie Munger doesn't bother with it, I'm I'm okay to say I don't need to worry about it either. Yeah, some people do use it and use it a lot, and I think so. This will this will be critical. Some people will love this concept and will not like me talking about it this way, and I apologise in advance, uh, not for telling the truth, but or my truth anyway, but for uh, for sounding like I'm being dismissive. I think there is too much, like we talked about before, about every, you know, once upon a time, Andrew and I would calculate every possible investment ratio that was accessible to, uh, to to an investor to try and calculate stuff. Because once you realize there are some formulas for stuff, and this is, I mentioned economics before. Economics went off the rails when, when maths turned up, when, when econometrics turned up, when they realized they could put things in a computer and try and model them out. And what happened is the, the, the beauty, in quotes, of the model uh, and the limitation of the model became inherent in the conversation, i.e. if you can calculate it, you should. And once you can calculate it, therefore you should do something with the answer. And that answer must therefore be useful and, and, and necessary and, and uh, illustrative, informative for an investment decision. Now, these two are related. And I imagine this is why Brent's asked it because WAC does kind of lean on internal rates of return a little bit. Um, and so we should probably should we probably mention that. Effectively, what it's designed to do, and we, it goes back to enterprise value actually as well, is it goes back to trying to work out the cost of running the business based on the fact that all of the sources of funding have a cost. Now, we know debt has a cost, right? Because debt's cost is the interest rate and you've got to pay it back. So that's, that's relatively straightforward. It also tries to apply a cost to equity. Yeah, that's, uh, that's the tricky part. And I think it's pretty useless um yeah on one level equity holders want a return and so again maybe conceptually like internal rate of return it has some validity because you're saying well if i need to pay my debt if i need to pay off my or pay back my shareholders if i need to return some capital shares and they want a certain return then the cost of running the business is the again weighted so if it's let's say business is half debt half equity because it makes my life easier um the cost of the debt might be five percent and investors want a return of ten percent so that's an average weighted average cost of capital seven and a half percent right half of five half of ten whack them together you get um 5.75 let's say 7.5 um that's that's kind of the broadest concept and there is supposed to be uh an understandable and applicable cost of equity I don't buy it. I think it's kind of someone who wanted to say, if I could evaluate, if I could put this in a spreadsheet, what would it look like? Now, if you're asking what the cost of capital is for any stock I own, it's a million percent because I want all of my companies to earn a squillion dollars on the equity, right? So, so what is, you know, a company that says, actually, I only want you to own 5% on your equity, scale, well, get stuffed. Now, if it's only 10%, well, get stuffed, I want 15. If 15, well, I want 20. And so it kind of, it ends up being cover to calculate something that doesn't need to be calculated and to explain away something that needs to be explained away. It, people do use it as a discount rate in this, again, in the discounted cash flows. Interesting, he just chooses 10% because that's the average market return. I do the same because I want to get the market return or buy an ETF. Like it's, for me, it's really, really simple. It's that simple. It's opportunity yeah. cost 101. I could yeah. buy an ETF that gets me an average of 10, I mean, probably nine, but you know, nine or 10%. I can buy that ETF tomorrow. So if I'm going to forego that, 
I want more than that. It's just really, really simple. Saying the wage of cost of capital is this because this much debt, this much equity, and this much return for equity is required. And blah. It's like, well, if it was 9.7% your weighted average cost of capital, but you still get 10 on the market, you'd still go to the market. If it's 11%, great, buy the shares. And again, to Ram's point, it is opportunity cost. So if I get 12% somewhere else, I'm going to take that as well. Yep. Um, calculate a number just so you can put it in a spreadsheet is, I think, where a lot of people go wrong, frankly. Um, it leads to false position, precision, it leads to false confidence. So that's what it is. That's how it works. Andrew will do a better job of explaining it. But um, I don't mean to dismiss it out of hand. Again, like IRR, it's kind of, I mean, it makes sense, right? There is a cost of debt and shareholders do want a return. And so there is a, you know, as, as an entity, uh, looked at at arm's length from the funding sources, again, a bit like enterprise value as well. Uh, you know, if a business with a weight average cost of capital is 7% or one other one's 10%, well, I guess, you know, it, 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 you want the one with a lower cost of capital because then you can have bigger excess returns, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, I just don't know. It's particularly useful. Go on, Ram. Tell me, tell me why I'm right and wrong and, and what no, you're, you're No, you're – I mean, so it's like IRR in the sense that I think conceptually it's important, and it, but it's more from the management perspective than the investor perspective. I would love to think – I mean, it's a, it's a nonsense to try and think that there is a real and true and objective value for it out there. Because, because of the cost of equity component of it, which is going to be based on some kind of guess work anyway. Um, but if I'm, if I'm a steward of a, an enterprise and I have ambitions and opportunities and I have positive ones. So again, I've got a bunch of stuff on my desk. My team has come to me and said, boss, here are all these investment opportunities that are going to make us rich. Mm. You go, great. Question one, what's the IRR of each of those projects? Yes. Yeah. I could do this. I could do that. Is the opportunity cost. It always comes back to the same core principle. So I've got so much money right now that we've raised from shareholders or we've raised from debt to go right back to the first concept. I've got money. I've got money right now. What, are we, what am I going to spend it on? I think we should go to China. Okay. I think we should invent, you know, version 2.0. Okay. And, here, and, and, and then the next question is, well, what's the IRR? Well, thumb suck. I think this is it. Great. I'm going to obviously pick the highest IRR because because I'm not an idiot, right? I want the best rate of return. Again, I'll adjust that. To, I'll, I'll, I'll adjust for a, a bit of risk in, in all of that. Now, it might be that I actually don't have enough capital to do all of the things that I want to do. So now weighted average cost of capital is where things that get really important from a, from a management standpoint, because I can just go to the bank, say, Mr. Bank Manager, can I have some money, please? Yep, sure. Yeah. Interest rate for a corporate loan for a company of your size and, 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 and status is, well, I saw one the other day, it was 12% plus the bank bill swap rate. It's pretty high cost of debt, but Jeez. small cap company that's cash flow negative. Guess what? Beggars can't be choosers. That's what it is. But they, they took that deal, right? They took that deal. Let's let's go. It was a 15, 15%. Okay. Now I'm going to consider raising money on the market because 15% is a very high cost of, of capital. Um, oh, our share price is in the bin. So that's even worse. And that's why it's important. Sometimes shareholders get really upset because management teams are opportunistic. The share price runs really high for, and hot for some reason. And then sure enough, they go, oh, we're raising capital for <laughs> working capital purposes. I think, oh, I hate that. I actually don't. I'm more, I'm, more, I'm, mm. I'm increasingly sympathetic to it. 
Are and you? I'll ex- yes. The generic Be- working capital is my issue, though. They're doing it because for the sake of it, rather than actually because they have a genuine use for it. That's that's the yes. No, we agree. Working, there. working capital yeah. is just so we can pay the bills. Like working capital is literally the the overdraft account or the the, the transaction account that we've individually got. My working capital is you know the, the money that goes up and down in my savings account where the money comes in and then goes back out a bit. Yes. Having more in there just for the sake of it, you're a little bit safer, but maybe by definition. But that, that, that raising is a very capital, polluting shareholders for that purpose. Honey, we're, we're going to you know, sell one of the kids so we can increase our working capital. So, so you're 100% right. So the big proviso here is that, well, look, there's 100 things we would love to do if mm-hmm. only we had really cheap funding to do it. Now, it might be a world where debt is really cheap for us. And this is, mm-hmm. the, this is the advantage of size, right? It's because Woolworths does not borrow at 15%. I can promise you that, right? Um, but, but this is why management needs to have a clear understanding of it. Share price rallies super high. It's another way of saying the cost of capital cost of equity capital is really yeah. cheap, actually. Yeah. Um, and in fact, if there is a big burning opportunity here that's you know not, not, not an especially risky thing to do, we just never really had the funds to do it, raise capital. Yeah. Raise, raise, I 100% agree with that too. You know, that, that is, you would be stupid not to take the opportunity where the share price has gotten to such an extent yeah. where it's frankly, you're all around the board table going, it's kind of a bit silly. I mean, we th- we're confident of the business, but the market's really running hot here. But, and- well, there are all these things that we could do. And mm-hmm. what's the what's the cost of equity? Well, on our assumptions here, we're, we're actually raising money here at like 1% interest rate. Fill your boots and go and do the thing, right? Um, and so that, that's why, so I'm going to try and try, tie this in a knock because I've been blathering all over the place here. For an investor standpoint, I don't know if it really means, the whack really means much. Mm-hmm. And if you're using capital asset pricing models, you're trying too hard. It's a waste of time and don't right. worry about it. But I do hope that management teams are very seriously looking at it in context of the projects that they have available. If you've got things that you can do that you've got a high confidence of making money on and there is a low cost of capital funding solution, whether that be through equity or debt, and that's why it is important to have like some guess as to what your whack might be, your weighted average cost of capital, useful in that conceptual context. What do I do with it on a spreadsheet when I'm deciding what share to buy? Nothing really. Does that make sense? Am I talking out of two sides of my mouth? No, mate, you, no, you did right. This is even even knowing the whack is not as relevant as I mean. If it's if it's so long, here's the other thing: if if it's so long ball, you're not sure if you're going to cover your cost. Don't do it because you just yep. know it's probably going to be wrong anyway. If yep. you, if your whack is three or five or seven percent, you make a fifteen percent return. It doesn't matter. Like you know, it's a, there's yep. there's some element of you know it, it only it only matters if you're so close to that line you're trying to work it out in which case don't do it and it doesn't yeah. matter if your returns are going to be so good then it doesn't matter what the cost is in which case just do it anyway it's, and i don't mean that flippantly but i do mean you know how many infrastructure projects don't go over budget right so mm-hmm. if someone sat down with the, with the state pre- treasurer and said we should do this because our weighted cost average cost capital is seven percent we think we get seven and a half percent i'm like you know what, dude, firstly, your weighted average cost of capital is a guess. Secondly, your returns are a guess. And thirdly, those numbers are so close together. Yes. That fair income. There's no, no margin of safety right? in there. Yeah, right. there's, there's no flex whatsoever. Correct, correct. So it's, again, important conceptually, but if the numbers are that close that you have to be able to calculate accurately, yep. then to my mind, you're too close to line. Go into something else or give the money back to shareholders. You're not, you're not in the business of taking risk that may or may not have a positive return. You know, it's, it, either it's a strongly positive return or give me the money back because I'm not, you know, I don't want you to have that extra cash. I'm not paying you to make 50-50 bets. 
Yep. Let me put it in the small business context again. Mm. So let's say for whatever reason it's 2021 again and money's just gushing from <laughs> from the falling from the sky. Yes. And some some silly VC decides that straw man <laughs> is worth 10 million dollars, right? Yep. Yep. <laughs> and it's like I like this is not me being humble. It is not worth 10 million dollars. <laughs> like, by the way, if anyone wants to I'm just like, say, yeah. <laughs> Don't be so fast. I mean, I mean, it is, it is. You should totally buy me out for 10 minutes. It's, look, it's totally, it, it never will be, right? But let's say that, uh, by the way, this is the kind of crazy stuff that was happening a couple of years ago, right? Silly little startup ideas with nothing more than a pitch deck and two kids fresh out of uni were getting valued at these kinds of prices. Yeah. So anyway, let's say that it is. I am going to take the goddamn money. I'm going to take that money because the cost of capital is so ridiculously low. I can almost, even if it was just like, I tell you what, I'm going to raise money at that valuation yes, correct, correct. and I'm going to buy a government bond with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, exactly, exactly. And all shareholders are going to be really, yeah, you know, yeah. maybe not the ones that tipped in <laughs> that high valuation, but the existing shareholders. Everybody else gonna, gets free money. Yeah, we're we're yeah. getting free yeah. money. We're getting yeah. free money to do it. Uh, that, that, and that is why, again, from the lens of the capital allocator, the, the key decision makers in the business, you really do need to have a an opinion. It's, it's, it's going to be nothing more than an opinion, yes. but you yeah. do need to have an opinion of, of your cost of capital and the opportunities that you have for that. Because if you ever have a low cost of capital opportunity and a good investment, sorry, let me phrase that. If you have a low cost of capital source of funds, whether that be through debt or equity, Mm -hmm. and you have a high return project that you're reasonably confident on, Mm -hmm. do it. That's why we're here. That's why we're here, right? Uh, Fill your boots. In all other circumstances, don't do a damn thing. Motley Fool Money. For more, subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. Mate, I'm going to finish with, uh, this, is a, this is a Motley Fool Money mailbag episode. And, uh, and the mailbags generally are questions, although in keeping with the Motley Fool Money format, there's occasionally a mailbag rant. Oh, I love it. And so I wanted to share this rant because I think it is ridiculous uh and i would hope you agree or you're welcome not to to agree mate and uh but our questioner or our <coughs> ranter writes in and says hello scott and andrew love the show and tune into both shows every week thank you all for your shared knowledge and your lean into discussion on government policy which feeds into my question slash rant related to new south wales police superannuation i'm the wife of a police officer says our ranter. We have both worked extremely hard to get where we are in our respective careers and have three children under four. I decided to return to work full-time after baby number three, and while that has afforded me an opportunity to increase our family income, it of course comes with sacrifice, spending time away from the kids. For childcare, we pay around $2,000 per fortnight out of pocket. and have been fortunate to get some subsidy to avoid having to pay the full fees. Given my promotion and working full-time, we were close to the childcare subsidy cap last financial year. When we came to June 30, we had kept our family income within the cap. Happy days, as it didn't impact our subsidy that we had received, or so I thought. Unbeknownst to me, was the substantial impact my husband's super would have. New South Wales Police, and I believe the only workforce in Australia with this arrangement, have legislated insurance. Increases in insurance premiums have been substantial. And for this past financial year, the insurance premium was somewhere in the vicinity, get this, mate, of $30,000. What? I know, right? Legislated. The ATO considered this part of an individual's concessional contribution cap to super. 
So before you even consider his actual super contributions, he exceeds the cap and he cannot opt out of the scheme as it's legislated. You can see where this this is going, says our ranter. In short, it's resulted in an adjusted income of more than $20,000. This has a flow-on effect. For us, it means we have to pay back our childcare subsidy as we are no longer eligible. You get a tax bill, increased Medicare levy, and there are other flow-on effects, i.e. we cannot make concessional contributions to help boost his super because the insurance absorbs the entire cap and beyond. She says, I would love to hear your thoughts on this and hopefully this can bring it to the attention of listeners who may be serving officers or partners of officers as I was caught unawares. The New South Wales Police Association and New South Wales Police have tried to have changes made so the insurance would not be considered as part of the cap, but this effort has been occurring for years to no avail. The situation has just become so much more significant, basically impacting officers through all levels, including our probationary officer, she says, because of how substantial the insurance premiums have become. Thanks for listening to my gripe. The situation really has us reworking our expenses and evaluating if it is worth us both working full time and it's not, she says. Isn't that the most completely screwed up thing you've ever heard? Uh, I'm flabbergasted. Yeah. Uh-huh. I, I Actually, honestly, I thought, sure, that cover. I did a bit of digging. This one came through a couple of weeks ago and I did tweet about that um, a couple of weeks ago as well. It is... so. so uh, firstly, the fact that coppers have a $30,000 life insurance premium, I'm, I'm glad for them they have it or... Uh, probably total permit disability as well because it's a it's a rough gig, right? In the sense it's, of being injured on the job, it's, it's a just, it's you know, a so. risky occupation, hundred percent. Yeah, but to have it, I and and also too, by the way, as much as um, as much as our question says he can't opt out, I'm glad he can't. I, and our, our police officers should be covered. Frankly, it probably should be a government scheme rather than a bloody private insurance offering anyway. Because mm-hmm. if you're a copper or a fire or an ambo or something, you get, you get hurt in the, in the line of duty, you're kind of entitled to have the government look after you, right? You're, you're serving us. Um, so so frankly, I'd start there, but. It's legislated. He can't opt out. It's a $30,000 premium, which is in excess of the contribution cap, which I think is 27 odd grand right now. Mm. Um, so not only, is, not only has it increased their take-home income for welfare and childcare and other you know, calculations, he also can't add more money to his super to actually help his own retirement because that, that money is completely absorbing the concessional contributions cap. It so is, we're going to incentivize you to work less. Right. How bananas is that whole... Just. On about 85 different levels, that is just the most ridiculous thing I think I've ever heard. Yeah, there's there's a whole bunch of stuff like that. Um, I can see how it's not so, such, such a grand conspiracy. It's just people no, make decisions not. that feel good at the yeah. time. We haven't thought through the second and third and fourth order effects. And they just become, you know, it's my mother-in-law's on a disability sort of pension. And it's like, she really wants to work and contribute. Yeah. But it gets to a point where it's like, I'm actually at a disadvantage. The more I contribute to society, the more disadvantaged <laughs> I am. Right. Like, so I guess I'll just suck oh, on the public teeth. Like, so messed up. That is madness. I remember so when we, up. our kids were younger, it was my wife worked purely because she wanted to work. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Financially, it was a wash. Yeah. What, whatever, because, you know, she, she was- she was a PhD in immunology, right? So she, <laughs> she's she's trying to like cure diseases and stuff. And just in our society, it's not an occupation that pays very well, mm-hmm. despite all of that study. And talk about internal rate of return. <laughs> talk about the <laughs> ed- education right. expense and the oh, and the time value of money. That has been yeah, a woeful, yeah. woeful. But you know, 
Thank God there are people out there who sort of try to pursue these kinds of things. But 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 my point being is that it's similar in that I always try to I always find a way to make it about me, don't I? So here here I am making it about me. But it's the it's the same kind of point though, where it's just sort of like yeah. there are there are it is a really good idea to have subsidies for childcare. It is a yeah. really good idea to have proper insurance for the coppers. It is really good idea for all of these kinds of things, but when the, it drives incentives in the opposite direction mm-hmm. to where you want it to be, it's sort of like something is fundamentally broken. Yeah. And what what always, the, the most frustrating thing of it all is, and as I said, I'm not going to take the conspiratorial angle here because <laughs> I don't think there is any malevolence. No, it, 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 it just, you know, things evolve that way. Bureaucracy is a big, slow-moving beast. Mm-hmm. But it's sort of like, it's so, once a system is, entrenched it is so hard to move and you can point to and go that's really dumb someone should do something about that yeah yeah we should and it doesn't and like you know it's i i don't know why it is maybe there is some other argument to be had it's like well we do it that way because of x y and z and if we didn't i'm open to that possibility Mm. although i can't possibly (laughs) understand (laughs) what it what it would be because it it feels as though some poly just needs to come in and and make a change on on that stroke of a pen kind of stuff because that is that's an easy fix i um so yes uh, i i don't making the individual offices have insurance outside a government compensation scheme generally and then have that on their own individual books is just bananas to me um mm-hmm. i'm not surprised that, by the way um I, i'd be pretty keen to work out who's paying for the insurance and who's providing the insurance where they're making a squillion dollars because even even allowing for ah, the conspiratorial angle but yeah no, 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 no i'm with you that's that. that's what i was trying not to say like yeah there's always someone with the grift going on here like well, someone's once you, once it's good for someone once a legislative provider there's yep. you know it's when you when you're a monopoly provider of something it's there's a chance your margins creep up a little bit travel insurance is stupidly expensive yeah, stupidly yeah. profitable for example whereas car insurance isn't and it's just just the way these things tend to work it's just uh, a, yeah. a harder thing to do i um i so look yeah uh, uh, treasurer uh um premier do something about it fix it up for us um they don't deserve that kind of crap um worth also uh, just a, a slight tangent but not far mate is um i i'm i love superannuation i love the super scheme i love the compulsory nature of it these things are really 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 important um it does go back to how much we should contribute and how much we should pay tax on contributions and earnings in super it also though i'm going to stick my neck out and say that i'm not entirely sure that insurance should be available inside super as a as a mechanism um i think insurance is really important i think anyone of working age with dependents should have uh, life insurance and temporary and permanent disability insurance because if it always happens to you you want your partner and kids to be looked after uh, and yes, there are social safety nets, but do yourself and those people a favour if you can afford to have that insurance. I think you absolutely should. Um, that it really should be. It really should just be the most basic, boring industry on the planet, right? I, you know, like just change solving problems of the world here. It's like yeah. everyone. I would say this is the socialist in me. After I've had my free market rants, <laughs> I, I would, I would, say, oh, yeah, and I can do that. I can somehow square these circles. Free market but, socialism. I love it. That's good. It's, it's, it's going to catch you. You know, in, in the sense that I feel as though things like life insurance. TPD. These are kind of almost basic human rights, I, yeah. I would sort of yeah. say. And it's just that the trouble is, is, is 
there's there's too many for profits sort of in there. It feels like it's like w- things that you can the actuaries can work out with high degrees of certainty. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We should ju- this is a natural monopoly, right? Yeah, and so this right. should really just sort of be we have one national scheme. Mm-hmm. We all tip into it according to our means, and if the worst happens, you get paid out. Now, <laughs> if you want to take advantage of that by like putting yourself in a wheelchair or like dying early, then, you know, it's, not, it's, 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 a, very, it's a very difficult system to exploit. That's game. Exactly. And, and, you yeah, know, yeah. Yeah. and so it just sort of, and it should just be very, very basic. We we all know that we pay into this thing. Mm-hmm. Most of us won't need it and we'll be happy that we never call upon it. Those that do have it. Either and, way, it's a great outcome. Right? And when you we run it- It's a great outcome if you need it. And when we run it that way, the costs are super low, right? Yeah, and yeah. when it's like, it's everyone wins. It's so easy. It's so easy. Hey, just quietly, uh, speaking of uh, taking those to free market, socialism to its to its end result uh even if you're talking about it almost i would i would almost i'm on record as this i would go a step further and i would say that's a very 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 strong case for universal basic income i wouldn't use that term because it's loaded but yeah yeah yeah. well kind of is right yeah it's definitely loaded but that that idea if you get crook then you can't work you get a payment Yes, and if you die and your kids need looking after, they get a payment. It, it's yes. it, it literally is almost the very definition of you know the, the combination of these welfare safety nets across the board. Uh, if you if you literally take it to a conclusion of hang on, well the government pays, we put a little bit of money, and it's like well, yeah, that kind of sounds like universal basic income. And that, that's literally if you, if you can't work, you get it. If you don't want to work, or you have to do the mutual obligation thing, but you can get it. If you're looking after sick relatives you can get it it's if you're not earning enough you can get it it's almost you know again we won't open this can of worms at this point in the podcast but if you kind of follow that through logically you put outside the ideologies and the the loaded terms as you say and the you know general views and start with as we said many many times a blank slate and say so hang on we've got all this bureaucracy and all these programs for all these things or we could just have a payment that covered death disability you know inability to work caring for adult you know, care for adults, care for kids, um, kind of all comes full circle to actually we've invented this ridiculously complex apparatus to do a very, very simple thing that could be resolved otherwise. I, I actually, oh man, it's such an interesting conversation. <laughs> no, it's your fault. You took me there. I strongly disagree on one angle and I strongly oh. disagree on another. So okay. I would say I love it and strongly agree on everything you just said, provided it is all uh paid for collectively by yes. if you if you frame it more as in a a national insurance scheme that like right, um right. who's the comedian is like you shouldn't call it insurance you should call it in case shit happens Stop. basically <laughs> <You know>? and, <laughs> and in case it's, it's an in case fund that we all fund collectively yeah. we all yeah. pay a few dollars a day and if ever we need it it's there that's that's yeah. um yeah. what i am strongly against is if this is something that is funded through ongoing government deficit because that is highly inflationary oh, and destructive and all yes. kinds of ways which which would yes. lead so i think a lot of ubi proponents <laughs> That's what yeah. they miss. There's That's a strong correlation with, with the modern monetary theorists in the, in the UBI yes. group as well. And that, that, yeah, is, you're, yeah. you're a million percent right, mate. Yeah. I, so, so two things quickly. Firstly, I would trial it. I wouldn't just roll it out. You want to trial it, make sure it works. Yeah. Um, and, and you know what You know what gets me? When you say we should trial this, people say, no, you can't. It won't never work. So the trial would show that. Yeah, we shouldn't trial it. What? <laughs> it might work. Like the, the, the ideological opposition to trialing something, I think is bananas. About, it's, it's, like, it's, like the inject- the world, right? it's like the injecting rooms. Like we should try. Right? No, 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 no. Okay, finally we do it. Like, oh, it's really effective. At re- what, what's our goal here? Are we trying to reduce, like minimize harm? Yeah, that's the goal. Well, it works. It works. Yeah. yeah. Let's roll. We should, we should expand and roll it out more. No, because drugs are bad. Exactly. That's why we're trying to minimize, you know, it is 
madness. Yes. Yeah. The only thing I would say is it absolutely should be revenue neutral. And my again, yes. I won't, I won't, we're going to heaps of detail, but you can you can frame it in such a way that people who are in a job effectively pay tax to the equivalent of the UBI payment, so that they don't get any net benefit from it. Those who are currently on any of these other payments who have to have a massive bureaucracy of government workers and programs and reporting all that kind of stuff, they get the same amount of money anyway. So yeah. you just take away the bureaucracy. It's not yeah. exactly self-funding, but you can do it in a really, 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 really easy way uh, that minimizes the the cost. This, by the way, it also recognizes the value of parents, largely mums who stay at home and work uh, by looking after kids. You know, that kind of, they're like, it's actually, it's actually a social benefit. Um, it is a you, productivity you, enhancing yeah. endeavor. Correct. Correct. Because it, it be, enables it revenue neutral. If I did it tomorrow, I would. Yeah. If you have to raise taxes, frankly, so be it. You probably don't because you probably again. I I get I would get the UBI, but I'd pay exactly that in extra tax. So yep. I get money paid back. No no harm. Um, the you'd have to line up at the at the CES or the, whatever they call it these days. Um, you'd have to qualify for it. If you lose your job, you'd have to then wait and go back to another job. It makes changing jobs easier. People, particularly some of the freer market ideologues, talk about labour mobility. Um, if you're going to change towns, change countries, change states, change jobs, you're out of work for a while, you've got to try and find another job. Uh, knowing you can leave a job on Friday, still get paid UBI on Monday, and then join another company on the following Monday after that, it, it, it's, it's honestly, if you're a free marketeer, it's a no-brainer. If you're a bleeding heart socialist, it's a no-brainer. Um, anyway, a whole different tangent, a whole different topic. It's so interesting though, isn't it? Yeah, but it won't happen because, oh, we don't do it that way and that's too hard and there's probably a few vested interests and there's probably someone out in there mm -hmm. in the mix who's doing just fine, thank you, with this arrangement. This is working out really well for us. Plus the uh, the dole bludger is the usual target of scorn and as soon as, uh, as, soon as, as, soon as someone yeah. thinks that someone might get money they didn't, air quotes, earn, uh, the, the, the envy and jealousy hits the, hits the surface and it goes pretty ugly from there. By the way, if you want to ever... Uh, say is there real economic value in the stay-at-home parent that looks after mm -hmm. the kids mm -hmm. all you have to know is that the car i just googled it the childcare services industry in australia generates 15 billion dollars in revenue each year <laughs> now i reckon if you went back 30 years that was even in inflation adjusted terms that figure is nowhere near that yeah was the same job very deliberately using that term done back then <laughs> someone was looking after the kids yeah as you say it was probably mum and it was probably at home, but it was never recognized as economic value. Now, because there's an industry sprung up around it, it is recognized as that. It just goes to show you that they're not everything that matters can be measured, not everything that yes. is measured can be that matters uh, type yes. thing. So it's sort of, yeah, these are, oh man, we I reckon we get a, a six week intensive um Retreat. We're somewhere nice. Go to Hamilton Island or whatever. Nice. Let's and we'll we'll solve. We'll we'll restructure the entire economy, superannuation scheme, uh, government spending, and uh, uh, we'll we'll usher in a new golden era era for Australia. What do you reckon, mate? If Strawman wants to have a have a, <laughs> a, a conference, I'm happy to attend as a, as a guest of Strawman with the combination of food paid for. That's a lovely idea. Thank you for the offer. Phil's will be back in seven weeks' time after Randy and I have been uh, I, I, spent. spent Six weeks Hamilton Island. I don't know what the IRR on that is, but uh, <laughs> I'm sure it'll be great. <laughs> we're we're going to later. What you do is you fudge the budget. Look, yes. I'm sure we're going to create billions of dollars with the value. So, and only in six weeks, you know, so oh, the IRR is through the roof. Pays for itself. It's a and, no brainer. And then some. Yep. Hey, um, I'm going to finish very quickly by it's like another slight tangent, only because I feel like I desperately need to because I'm that sort of bloke. Okay. Um, I'm just going to add, and I know you didn't mean this otherwise, or maybe you did, in which case, feel free to say that. Um, but uh, having having uh, friends, very good friends, and others who work in the early 
early childhood education industry, um, there is while there is a massive grift around profiting from childcare, uh, there's also huge amounts of value from early childhood education that aren't just looking after the kid while mum and dad are at work. Um, we know from research in the US, there's a great Australian organisation, let me give a massive plug, Thrive by Five. Uh, Jay Weatherall, the former South Australian Premier, uh, heads them up these days. Okay, I think they're nice. funded a little bit by Mindaroo, which is Twiggy's uh, charity. Um, I own shares in Fortescue, so I have a tiny direct, uh, indirect interest, but not really, because they give giving money away, not making it. Um, Thrive by Five is excellent. Uh, the value of early childhood education is extraordinary. So I, I absolutely, you know, the, the, institutionalizing childcare for its own sake so we can, you know, somehow create economic economic value in quotes by sending mums and dads back to work early. I think, it, yeah. frankly, well, it's, just a shy, it's just a shell game. It just wasn't measured before. Now it is. And look correct, at this. Yeah. But, but um, I'd also don't want to, uh, there, is an ed- there is educational value in that. It's not just looking after the kids so mum can get back in the workforce. There's genuine kind of, you know, uh, developmental value as well. So again, yeah. way off the tangent, uh, but I, I, one of my, one of my favorite Twitter bugbears, people talk about childcare. I'm like, no, it's early childhood education. There's a bit of childcare in there as well, but don't, don't forget the other bit. So I just had to, because uh, I can't help myself, had to mention that as well. Yeah. Yeah. As someone who works from home, I have increasingly come to the, <laughs> to the, to the, uh, to, to the, view that like just school in general is is institutionalized daycare oh, because it, 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 it it's sort of like i'm great i'm really glad that the <laughs> kids are, are learning how to read and write while they're there but it's just like my my day would not be nearly as productive if they if i were home all day every day and i had to teach them how to do all this stuff it'd be much much trickier you also see why uh, people with uh, rich people in old days with governesses got education done in an hour and a half a day because for all the all oh. the, you know one teacher having to deal with 30 kids and manage all that stuff as you say it's institutionalized childcare with education kind of interspersed where they can where they can find some room uh, i've got some and my young has got some great school teachers but um yeah man that, that that's corralling 30 kids for six and a half hours a day is a, is a tough ask Oh man, so so tough. I did look. We've gone so far over time now; it doesn't matter at this point. But there was a there was a report released this week uh, into the state of teaching. Um, oh, right. in New South Wales, and it's Indeed. disastrous. Oh, and one of the funny things—not funny thing—it's funny because it's either cry or laugh—is um, that of all the things that's going wrong now, is it chronically, chronically understaffed, like desperately, um, and and one of the points made and it was like, we knew this was coming like 20 years ago, right? Oh, like yeah. it, it's like a lot, it's like, I, I want to say climate change. I want to say a lot of these things that are sort of coming down the track are all sort of like really just like, there's a little guesswork involved. We, we talk about the difficulty of investing and trying to predict cash flows. And there are some things are just easier to predict than others. And anything around demographics is usually very easy to predict because, you know, it, it, you just push forward what, what, where, from where you are at the moment. And it's a classic example of the whole thing just f- ending up in a d- disastrous train wreck that where you had like 10 years to swerve and you didn't. <laughs> Totally. <laughs> and 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 just the solutions that are being offered right now because it's all band-aids around it and it's just that that the broader point here is you know there is there is a, mm. I think as a society we'd be a lot better off if more of our decision makers and agencies thought like investors yeah. in the terms of internal rates of return and cost of capital. Yeah, that's a good point, actually. Yeah, yeah. You know, just to sort of bring yeah, it all yeah, together. Yeah, be, be, yeah. And knowing that none of these things are necessarily dollar values, but they're, they're insanely 
good returns, quote unquote, from a whole bunch of other sort of endeavors that we could do. That's really the, the, the basis of good policy decision, really, is like we as a, as a nation and as a government that looks after the nation have so much money, we have so much opportunity. Really, we want to make sure that we maximize value for everyone in the country. And to do that, we need to have some kind of thinking about long-term internal rates of returns on all of these projects, the opportunity set that's in front of us and how we can fund it. You made the point recently, many times, in fact, uh, was it, uh, well, not so long ago, where it's like, why wasn't the government borrowing like a drunken sailor when it could have raised funds at 1-2% for 30 years? And then, and then the, the key part here, not, not you know, done something dumb with it, but yep. really invested that sensibly. Yep. Gosh, the- the, the, Mate, the New South Wales government talked about, borrow, talked about borrowing money and investing in equities, which yeah. would have been a spectacularly good idea. Genius. Like, Genius. Right, and it's kind of thing, you know, why, why would you do that? Well, because I can arbitrage. If, oh, if dumb, you dumb if they were paying 10% interest. Right. That's the stupidest yep. thing in the world. Yep. Yep. 1% in the world, 1%, yeah, take yep. my money. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Anyway, way off. All way, right. way, way off the reservation here. Surprisingly enough for us, because it's the first time for everything, and apparently today is that first time we've gone off on a tangent. So if you're still listening by now, um, maybe you finished your, uh, well, you're almost 90 minutes into your run or you've, your ocean <laughs> swim or whatever. So thank you for spending your time with us on a, a Sunday or a Monday, which is whenever you do listen to this, uh, for, for our mothers who are still listening and nobody else who gave up half an hour ago. Uh, mates, uh, we, we should try and short this one up next time. What do you reckon? Should we come back on Friday and have another go? Yep. Try and stop me. Hey, if you do want a question answered in the mailbag, hit us up, info at fool.com.au. We're on all the socials. Andrew is on at strawmaninvest or at sage underscore Simeon on Twitter. Uh, I am on Twitter and Insta and threads at TMF Scott P. Um, I can't remember my Mastodon account. No one cares. And Andrew thinks it's funny. If you're on Facebook, (laughs) go to facebook.com forward slash Scott Phillips money. We will see you on Friday. Enjoy the rest of your weekend and fool on. Cheers. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. The Motley Fool operates under financial services licence 400691.